0: Is Primus Tracks with Josh, Frankie and Zoya.
1: What a couple of dumb shits. Hello primates or maybe today I should say hello Wonkites! <laughs> you found Primus Tracks, congratulations. I am Josh and I am joined by two Primus Stalwarts. First from Primus Tracks Towers of Mexico City, it's Frankie. Hey Josh. Frankie's got his uh, Wonka costume on. He's ready to go. Big old curly hair there. I think that's fantastic. The purple suit, (laughs) looking good. And our ace in the hole. I love it when he's here. You do too. It's Tim Sawyer. Hey, guys. What's happening? Is it uh, it too early to spoil that you were one of the Oompa Loompas and therefore you have a place (laughs) in Wonka history too?
2: I think everybody already knows that. I think they do. At this point. Uh, I can't remember. Were you stage right or stage left? I was stage or stage right i came out on Lur's side came out on Lur's side stage right because i'm always on i'm always side. told that i was the oompa loompa that actually did it in time
0: <laughs> it, it like pretty hit or miss as to keeping it in time so, uh tim sorry but josh and i uh forgot okay. who was the other oompa loompa uh
2: it was our dude that was in charge of setting up the video wall peter okay thank you uh it was flounce and fred on the new year's show the first one it was me and flounce oh nice Okay, now infamous for being even worse at doing squat in time. From what I was told, oh, I couldn't see. I had the costume, but everybody's like, "Jesus go. Christ, Fred couldn't even keep it going in time with you, dude." <laughs> okay, moving on. Sorry, enough sidetracking already. Well, really. No, I, I really hope you got some kind of plaque
1: for that—the the, uh, the Oompa with the most rhythm or something. So. In uh, case I <laughs> there it is, <laughs> in case you can't tell, primates, we are talking today about Primus and the Chocolate Factory with the Fungi Ensemble, the 2014 release, and everything that goes around it. We're going to talk about the initial New Year's Eve performance, uh, the record itself. We're going to talk about the promotions and memorabilia. We're going to talk about the tour. So why I was on the tour for like seven years, and uh, we're going to talk about everything that has to do with uh, this Wonka era of Primus, but I think it's really important for us to start with Tim Alexander as he returned to the fold in late 2013, uh, just in time for this New Year's Eve performance. But Soya, I think you know a little bit more about that than any of us.
2: Yeah, you know, I was working with Shell Crow at the time. And she was in the midst of changing her whole thing, crew-wise, because she had moved to Nashville. And I got gotten a call from Primus Management asking if I was available. They needed a Duem tech. blah, blah, blah. Uh, I said, no, I'm busy, but maybe. And all of a sudden, everything changed. And I did need work. And I called Brad right back. He goes, OK, cool. You're in. First thing you're going to do is duo to twang. OK, so I go and I do all the duo to twang. Except the first couple shows that the bass tech or the dude that was doing it quit right after the first little run of shows, and I did the rest of it. Take it back to where Tim and Les started having discussions again about Tim coming back, and it, it kind of happened, you know, all in one big swoop. All of a sudden, Tim was back. And then when we finished up Duo to Twang, we wanted to get Tim into a room with those guys because New Year's was coming up, and you know, you have to do the Primus New Year's show. So, okay, let's do this. So we get the rehearsal room together. I take that back. Les's wine party happened.
1: Oh right, like, yeah, the old wine party with the wine the, party happened. The drum contest, right? The the so
2: yeah, no, something like
1: that. The winner got to be the drummer that night or something, right?
2: No, I think that was a brain thing, wasn't it? Um,
1: oh, the Holy Mac tour, like they they had that narrative that Brain found the golden drum head. And became yeah, something the like that. Drummer. Anyway, yeah.
2: so we're doing – that was the wine party was where they announced that Tim was actually back in the band. Right. And so right after that happened, we set up time to rehearse, and then it was like, okay, let's do this. And it's like, oh, well, Tim, what drums are you going to play? Oh, well, I only have my drums at home, which I don't want to pull out of my studio, but the white drums are around. And my friend Goob has all the hardware. Okay, so I'll figure it out. I find the white drums. <laughs> The hardware shows up, it's a third of what we need to set up the drums and there's no cymbals and there's, you know, it's just like there was nothing to go put a drum kit together. So we, I start running around the Bay Area between my drums and Les's drums and what Tim had. I put together a kit for him to at least get started on, right? Mm-hmm. So that was that. Tim was back in the band. We started rehearsing, like they just started rolling through the tunes, you know, and that was just a monumental moment in itself, you know?
1: And that's late November, early, early December?
2: Yes, okay. correct. But the wine party is around Thanksgiving. So it started right after Thanksgiving is when we got this going. Yeah. With with now a deadline that it's on. The, the word got out that Tim was back because, you know, all the kids at the wine party with their phones immediately posting it that night. So the word got out. Of course. So then it was like, we got to get rehearsing. We've got a New Year's show. We got to get this figured out, you know. So first is first. First things first, we start rehearsing. And so all of us techs all got down into the rehearsal room in Katadi at the studio there and got to it, you know, and it was hilarious. (laughs) Actually, I, I take that back. We started rehearsing before the wine party because me and Kehoe got the gig opening the wine party that night. Right. Because I had my drums sitting in my car at the rehearsal where Tim finally came in and I had to pull my drums out of the car because I had to drive three hours to get down there. And my shit was sitting in Prairie Sun and Les saw my kick drum and goes, whoa, what the fuck, what the fuck is that? Whose kick drum is that? And I was like, oh, it's mine. Me and Keo got this band we're going to try. We're going to go rehearse. And he just, without even batting an eye, says, oh, well, you guys are the opening act for the wine party this year and it's next weekend. And it was like, oh, wait, whoa, 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 what, what, what? That's right. And so Tim had to come out and play Pachyderm on my little Black Cat Grave drum set, which was basically a kick drum, a snare drum, uh, an octabon, and a floor tom. Right. <laughs> right, and yeah. So that's what, That's the timeline on that. And then we went right back into rehearsals and continued on. Okay, so that was the whole deal. Tim's back in. And then of course Brad Sands management is there, and he's like, "Come on, Les, what are we doing for New Year's? Let's do pork soda." And it's entirety. Let's do it. Come on, let's do this, or let's do—I can't remember what the options were—and Les would just wouldn't give him an answer. You know, he's just like thinking about it, not sure what he wanted to do. And Brad running out of time to get it all together, knowing what are we going to do? Yeah. do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? It was like that, you know. And Les is like just not answering and not replying and saying, "I'll let you know when I'm when I decide." And so finally, Les starts kicking on the idea. Hey. I've always wanted to do the Wonka record, you know, like not the record, but I wanted to do that soundtrack as a show. Mm-hmm. I want to do a Wonka theme show, and and I'm pretty sure Brad was like, Oh man, ah oh, man, no, oh, come on, dude, that that means we have to have all the stuff. We're going to do this, you know." It just became this like contention of what we were going to actually do, and it finally got to the day where Brad says, "We need to know right now what are we doing? No more stalling, Les. What are we doing?" And Les said. We're doing Wonka. (laughs) I was like, okay, the decision is made. We're doing Wonka. So that's how that all kind of just like unfolded while we were getting Tim back into a set list to play for New Year's, you know? It was kind of the whole gist of that rehearsal at first.
1: So it being last minute, then uh, it it was probably a scramble for production team, music team.
2: I mean, it it really started from ground zero that Les said, I want to do. I mean, I'm, I'm sure he had a vision you know of course he's got some kind of thin vision of what he wants it all to be now it's like implementing it all into like a reality for one show you know right there's no talk of a tour or a record at all at this point you know it was just this is what the show is because you know we've done those new year's shows at primus where you know it's a theme it's an opera night at the opera or it's you know sees a cheese in its entirety and then everybody throws cheese balls around or whatever the hell. You know, like there's some kind of theme going on. So this was going to be the Wonka theme show. So instantly they put the brakes on rehearsing Primus songs and say, okay, everybody go home, listen to this record, come back tomorrow, we're going to start working on how we're going to play these songs and what Hmm. we're going to do. Because if you've ever listened to the actual soundtrack, it's pretty creepy and it's pretty orchestra. It's not really Primus type versions obviously or even like you know it's not like playing farewell to kings and primus does their version of it it's like a soundtrack to a movie a weird goofy movie from the 70s you know that's all creepy totally new arrangements uh for these songs yeah so then the the first task at hand was to figure out what they were going to do with these versions and how they were going to interpret them in a primus way right so as we start going through them Candyman, i think was the first one was easy because they kind of just played it that one was kind of a song you know uh, sammy davis jr made it famous i think at one point so that one kind of came in and, and was like okay but now we got all these weird creepy moody songs that are for specific sections of the movie you know it wasn't like now, where you got like top five bands, Slipknot and Huey Lewis or whoever, everyone's got a song that just was played in the background on Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Or whatever. <laughs> right. It's like the songs were structured for what was going on, you know, like there was just like moods and songs kind of singing in the movie. So instantly, the first thing that happens is we say, OK, we need to get rid of this traditional drum set because it doesn't make sense for a trio like Primus to just play rock versions of these moody, creepy, weird songs, right? Uh-huh. So the idea then becomes, well, what can we do? Let's add percussion or let's add this, or then me and Tim start having deep discussions, not deep, but just like long, lengthy, what should we do? How can we do this? What do we have? What's around? Let's go get all this, anything we can find and try to figure this out. So we i instantly go to Les's house and he's got all kinds of shit from all of his frog brigade years, you know, collecting stuffs and percussions and world of Toms and, you know, whatever, what have yous and whatnots, And I just kind of like brought it all down there and we just kind of like moved the drum set out of the way and put the stool down and a kick drum and just started putting stuff that he would start playing along with like, okay, what, how does pure imagination go or whatever, you know, one of the songs and they would start playing it and Tim would just start kind of hitting on stuff that I kind of put in front of him. you know, whether it be frying pans or some toms or whatever then he would kind of like build a rhythm and it would be okay that's cool we'll get that out of the way for this song i'm gonna do that and then so the next thing would come up and go well, i don't want to use the same stuff what else do we got okay well how about this and we and all of a sudden this thing just kind of morphed into this big pile of stuff in front of them and they would start arranging their own versions of the way they were doing it you know which is essentially how you're hearing it on the record and how we did it live you know it's kind of just it is what it is You know,
0: Tim. um, yeah. Herve mentioned during an interview that this drum set was very Peter Gabriel inspired. Did you get that impression?
2: No. Uh, Tim had that in his head. It wasn't a discussion that we had. Uh, we one of, the one thing that we do we did have a discussion about about that. Uh, it wasn't let's build a drum set like Peter Gabriel. That's not what he meant. What he meant was there's a couple records or an era of Peter Gabriel where the drummer at the time did not use cymbals at all on the record or on the tours that they played. He had bells or dings or dongs, but there was no traditional crash cymbals or ride cymbals. So that became, you know. And one of the inspirations of what we were going to actually put up, like it wasn't just, okay, get all the symbols and put up a bunch of symbols. It was, what do we have? that's not a symbol. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we've got this clangy piece of metal. We've got this cowbell thing. We've got this clunky, weird thing over here. We've got some frying pans. And I was like, okay, let's put all that in front of me. And let me try to build some rhythms and and not ever have to go to this, this crash cymbal with the kick drum like I don't want that in there you know okay that's fucking awesome you know like we were just building something completely unique you know and that was the whole structure of it and the Gabriel influence was that that era when this drummer did not have crash cymbals on purpose at all I don't know if it's on purpose but I don't even know what album it is or what tour it was but Mm -hmm. I'm not a big Gabriel like knowledgeable guy so
0: so I'm here and you what, do you, what do you recall about the spiral symbol, which is pretty unique? Uh,
2: that's just something Zildjian was making, and as we were, as we were going along, I'm looking through all the websites of all the drum companies and to look at anything that's non-traditional that they had. My really good friend Kirsten over at Zildjian, you know, I just said, "Hey, I see you guys are making all these funny things and this funky weird thing," and she just sent me. Anything she had that was not a traditional symbol, and those were there's about three different ones we have of that. Oh, okay, yeah, and they, and they were cool. So we, I just started putting shit up, whether Tim wanted it or not, just to see if he would hit it. <laughs> and some stuff I put up and, we, and it went away, you know. And a lot of stuff I would put up, and all of a sudden it would be part of what the section was they were working on of mm. what song, and so then it would stay, and then it would have to be there because he'd never. We didn't jam. They didn't. We they didn't jam once they formed. From the structures of those songs, that's what they were. And as you okay. know, Tim, he doesn't deviate too far from what he's doing unless it's an actual uh, jam vehicle moment, you know, whatever yeah. the hell. But if he's playing a song and there's a part, especially with Wonka, they just played it exactly the same every day. Okay.
1: So there's a couple of threads there. One is uh, it sounded like you were helping, you were uh, doing some trial and error, helping build this kid out. And so if Herb didn't touch it, it's out. You took it, you took it away and maybe replaced yeah. it with something else
2: the goal was to get all these songs arranged have the stuff out there that he played when he made the songs because i was gonna have to put it into a truck and get it to the fox theater for them to be able to perform it you know Mm -hmm. so everything was not not you know from road cases and all ready to travel it was just stuff you know so it was really like okay dude I'm not. I have all the shit set up. I'm just going to spar away all the stuff you're not using because I got to get this all to Oakland, you know. <laughs> and he he was fine with that. It wasn't a contention. I'm just saying yeah. that's that's what when I say you know, I only put up what he hit because there really was no time or it just was stupid to have a bunch of shit up there. He didn't hit. You know? <laughs> was, it was the shit yeah? That you hit. You
1: know? Was the goal to have an almost 360 degree kit or that was just no, part and parcel it, of the process? What
2: happened was we we the Wonka kit kind of. Became what it was in rehearsals at that point, which was just a bunch of stuff, just kind of spread out in front of him, and in a sense that he could hit it all sitting on a stool. And then as time starts getting closer to New Year's, it's like, well, shit, how are we going to do Primus? We have to play Primus songs too, and you can't play Primus on that. Right. It was, you know, known we're not going to do Primus versions on this little Wonka, you know, Tinker Toy kit we put together. <laughs> so then I set up the white kit around the back of it in the room so that he like in a day we could come in in the morning and they could work on Wonka stuff. It's like, okay, let's do the Primus. And he could just move the stool back a little bit, spin around, and then there's the drum kit. And then he could do the Primus kit. Right. So that's kind of how it became 360 like that out of necessity to be able to, to do both really quickly. Oh, okay. Well,
0: intentionally or not, that drum set blended pretty well with the decoration of the yeah, stage and and eventually
2: i mean we, we we figured all that out but yeah uh the other issue was the space we only had this small room that we were doing these rehearsals in, so i couldn't we weren't on a sound stage sound stage type of size place where we could have this wonka kit set up on a riser and then have a 12 by 10 by 10 riser next to it and have the drum set set up over there it was like we were crammed in this little recording studio Main room and everything barely fucking fit in there with the bass amps and the guitar amps and the guitars and the roadies and the monitor desk. And the, yeah, you no, know, so it was just the only way we could get it going on, which you know eventually was cool because then we could it, it became what it was. You know, it was easy for him to have both right there, you know.
0: But that, and Tim, the, the toms that had like this minty design that came about later for the live performances,
2: the minty, the what
0: yeah because when you look at Tim's kit for the Wonka sets, uh some of the toms have a design that looks like a mint, you know like a candy.
2: oh, that just was to go along with the candy of Wonka. We had the art girl paint those up or something oh gotcha did. yeah, on the on the kick drums, right it was on the some of the octabons and the, oh, okay, and the gong drum was purple and white. it was just to make it look like candy. it was just to add to the effect of the stage look oh, that's right, I remember that.
1: Um, well, to go back to your point about the Wonka kit, you know it's it's definitely not for playing rock music. I'm looking at a diagram of it right now, and we'll put it up on our social so everybody can see this Frankenstein of a thing. But the uh, the idea that um, this is more orchestral, so these there's a lot of things that have very specific sounds to them that you wouldn't get in a uh, uh, with a rock approach or playing traditional rock music and. You know, when you listen to the studio recording, really the only track that even comes close to having a, a standard rock beat would be the final track, "Farewell Wonkites." Whereas everything else, okay. Tim is really playing. Uh, you know, he's he's a one man show back there, but he's playing very orchestrally, especially when I right. think On. about that.
2: That Latinx. was that was the goal. I yeah. mean, that that is what kind of blossomed out of what are we going to do? You know, like we don't want to do a traditional kick hat snare with some rack toms and crash cymbals kit that Primus is. So. It just became that, and then that kind of, you know, helped Tim develop those orchestral kind of parts because that's all that was really in front of him. You couldn't play. There was no hi-hats, you know. Mm-hmm. You could, there was a kick drum. There was a snare drum, but it was just used in that one section of that one song where the snare drum was in it. I can't remember, Ch- Cheer Up Charlie, maybe. I can't remember which. I'd have to listen to it again. But but it wasn't set up traditionally where he could just sit there and play a beat. You couldn't do that on that kid. mm mm-hmm. Again, that we were so pressed for time, you know. Obviously, we've could we could have gone a million different directions and gotten a million different other things to try to find, but we were so pressed for time, it was like get what we could get as fast as we could get it and get stuff together and songs arranged, and that was it. And then by the time we did the tour, of course, some things got you know updated to newer, better versions that weren't rusty shit out of Les's barn, you know, that we found. You know? <laughs> <laughs> or broken up versions of, or you know like broken percussion stuff i would get a brand new one obviously, right obviously right get through the tour of it well speaking yeah, of that, very kid. very orchest- orchestral and that's what yeah. was really cool about it and i think that was the driving force was to not be traditional and make it this kooky weird thing you know
1: so to uh go into more detail on that i'm going to sh- I'll share my screen here. I'm sure you can see that. This uh, And this will be on uh, Instagram at Primus Tracks as well as on Twitter at Primus Tracks and hopefully on the Facebook page. This is this diagram of the Wonka kit. Now, is this the final version of it that went on tour, Soya, that we're yes.
2: seeing from Drum Magazine? Yeah, that is correct. That is off of a, I thought the CAD artistic drawing a dude did from that Drum Magazine off of an actual sketch that I sent him that I sat there. It took me a couple days to do it. <laughs> yeah that's both kits that's that's the primus kit but it right up against the wonka kit yeah
1: oh okay so this is the entire thing got it so we're looking at uh and th- for those of you that don't uh do the social media um i'm not going to read all of these things but there were 17 drums on this kit
2: <laughs> uh
1: it looks like about the same number of symbols and then a lot of fun percussion toys like cowbells uh crotales uh, those the the jam blocks about,
2: can you scroll a bit because uh, i i think some of this he modified it wasn't exactly like that i think the dude got whoever was did it got a little frustrated trying to make it all jive like if you see those octobons on the right there uh-huh. number 17 those were actually over on the left to the left of the number 13 gong Gong. oh okay there's some things he just kind of like said, this is fucking ridiculous. And he just started putting <laughs> stuff in there, you know, because he couldn't figure out my drawing or it just was getting too much and they needed the article to come out, you know. It's close.
1: Close as it gets. How about those uh, two frying pans? Because we saw uh, a Jay Lane touring kit with Primus that had some frying pans as well. That's so. where those
2: came from. Those were the ones Jay was using on that Naga Hide tour. Oh, same so, one. Yeah. So, like I say, stuff that I found at Les's was stuff Less bought that, you know, it was Les's and Jay just used it. You know, it might have been from an old frog or I always say frog brigade, meaning one of Les's solo bands.
1: That's all encompassing. Okay. <laughs>
2: yeah. If I ever say from the Frog Brigade moment, that just means any of his solo bands where he would always say, Hey, I got these frying pans I found. And then two different projects might have those frying pans in them over his span of bands, you know.
1: I have a question about letter J for those of you following along on your diagrams. This intentionally cracked China symbol. What's that about?
2: Correcto. Uh, as the years went on, uh, when Tim came back, I, I think it started before him, but Les started not liking the bombasticness of the China symbol, right? Mm-hmm. So tape was put on it to try to tone it down, but it just kind of made it sound like shit. Uh, and we got to the point where uh, I knew that if it was broken, it, it would still have this sound, but it wouldn't be so abrasive. And so I started breaking them with a hammer, cracking them. Oh, wow. And that solved the problem that it still sounded like a China when Tim hit it, yet it wasn't overpowering everything and bumming less out. So it it was all in in trying to tone down the abrasiveness of a China symbol when you beat on it. You know?
1: Yeah, that was a less thing um, going pretty far back now as far as eliminating the wash, right, to let everything else
2: – Yeah, grow. I don't know how, how long that – went back obviously I only did a little bit of stuff with Jay when he was in the band and with brain, we just, we had a China symbol. There was no cracking it back then. That was back in the nineties. So I don't yeah. know when he, when he started really bumming out on that, but with Tim, he just kind of said, so you need to fucking do something. I can't fucking take that thing. And I said, well, how about if we put, fucking break it? And it, and it worked.
0: <laughs> uh, what is, what is letter Q? Uh,
2: letter Q was a drum that Tim got. It's like this steel sphere and you it's got these cutouts in it so it's kind of like a a updated new version of a jamaican steel drum oh sure okay only it's convexed as opposed to a steel drum being the concave punched in lid you know bottom of a steel drum so that's kind of that that was kind of the the focal point of a lot of stuff that was going on in some of those songs was that thing when you hear the weird bell like muffledy bells is that thing Okay. I can't remember what that thing's called. It's called something. It's like a specific brand.
1: Sorry, the legend says copper-colored UFO happy drum.
2: That's what it is. H-A-P-I. Yeah, it was called a happy UFO drum or something like that. Yeah. Yep. Like, wow. Someone gave it to Tim said, hey, you got to check this out. And he loved it. And he, he had just gotten it and brought it with him just to play in his hotel room. And so it was like, let's do this. Check this thing out. And <laughs> it was like, okay, that's cool. What else? what else you got less i'd be digging through shit looking for anything you know yeah
0: yeah well, what this, about the what about the chinese gong
1: oh letter
2: o. Chinese gong? oh that just was a little gong that i think less had from something when we hung it up he hit it in something i can't remember i'll never look him again but just you know more stuff that, that as stuff was getting put up and they were making these arrangements as they went they would be get, become part of the arrangement so i'd have to set it up you know
1: <laughs> so it's quite possible some of these things were only touched once, uh yeah. Or twice.
2: Yeah. Once or once or, once or a couple times, yeah. Which was fine. I didn't mind. If it was part of the arrangement that they wrote on the tune, then I was fine to set it up. I'm not saying I didn't want to set shit up. It's just you can see there's a lot of shit there. So anything that wasn't really getting used, I didn't really couldn't be bothered to set up more stuff just to have it up there.
1: I gotta say it's really impressive that you were able to one, get this thing put together and then two uh, take it on the road yeah it, it was it, together it was a real
2: challenge in the rehearsals because you know everything was old crusty weird shitty or <laughs> hadn't been used in years or parts were missing and and i was just me and base tech josh at the time he was kind of helping me dig through road cases with just you know stuff and parts and stands and trying to find a wing nut trying to find something that would screw in and hold this up or how can we mount these frying pans you know what i mean it was like all day just trying to like, okay, yeah, I like that. We got to get that hung up over here like this. And it's like, ah, oh, fuck, okay. Let's go find a piece of metal on a bar or a broken stand. And, you know, it just was really like put together to just get through that New Year's performance is is where we were at at Prairie Sun at that point. You
1: okay, know? so that, that New Year's Eve show then, uh, that first performance of Wonka uh, had some of the more janky equipment on it.
2: It was the original kit, yeah. Wow. It was all just that. That was the plan: was just to get through New Year's. There was yeah. there was nothing else. We're just going to get this all over there. We're going to get it set up, and we're going to figure it out, and then that's the end of it.
1: Oh, fantastic! Uh, that sounds
2: easy enough, right? Okay, yeah. it's a challenge. I'll take that. <laughs> yeah.
1: Did it feel like one of those "skinny your teeth" moments, or did you feel like you had it in hand?
2: No, it was fine. It, it's it, my only worry was that. Stuff. No matter how tight I got it tightened with a wrench, it still wouldn't stay tight. You know, because everything was mismatched parts and oh yeah, mismatched stand. You know, hardware parts with the wrong wing nut and the wrong this, and just cranking shit down just to get it to sit in a position that Tim wanted it. You know, right. And just get through one performance. Man, all week.
1: Yeah, because if something's stripped out or not threaded, it's falling.
2: Right on, and he's Oof. hitting it with sticks, so that's conducive to falling. Uh,
1: you're gonna have to remind me. I, I think he played a lot of uh, with a lot of regular drumsticks, but also some mallets and that sort of thing, right?
2: Uh, the Wonka performance was done exclusively on felt tip, felt head mallets, except for the snare drum thing. I think he, we had sticks to do the snare drum part because it's kind of a marching sounding snare part. He, I, I kind of have a vision of we had some sticks sitting on that drum, and he would just pick up the sticks and play that part, and then go right back to the mallets. We went through a lot of mallets, and I remember that <laughs> they, would, they would wear out because he was doing the whole set on them. You know? Oh wow! We get to that point where that kit is together, and they're writing these tunes, and they're probably three quarters of the way, if not more, through arrangements on all this. And Les gets this like idea, like we got to start recording this. Like Wallace is really fresh. Ah, and you know, at, I think at this point, Mike Dillon and skerrick had not arrived yet we were still doing the basics of getting this together unless says we need to pull the brakes real quick let's get all this up to my house and just get these bed tracks down before we forget them you know putting mm-hmm. up i mean obviously we had a little microphone in the room at the rehearsals and we were recording it like that but Les felt he wanted to capture the energy of them writing them right then so okay stop everybody stops the band went away and me and Josh and guitar tech at the time was Adrian. I want to say packed everything up, you know, and brought it up to Rancho Relaxo. And I, and I had to get that whole drum thing. I had to take a hundred pictures to make sure I could get it put back up. Oh man. Clothes. Cause you know, it, <laughs> it was built as he was recording, writing on it. Yeah. and We got it all up to Les's and I got it all set up. They think they recorded for about three days, and I, I wasn't there for that. Last said, I'm just going to take care of this. It's all set up. I was there for the first couple of days, got all the mics set up with him, and we did all the, the line checking. I made sure everything was ready, everything was working. And then it was just those three with less hitting the record button. I'm pretty sure Jason Mills might have been there helping him with the gear, but there was no, no, no need for me to be there. So I disappeared mm-hmm. for a couple of days. And then it was like, okay, we got to get back to rehearsals because we got to continue to get this New Year's show together, like the set. Right. And then I think that's where he decided I want to add Mike Dillon, lay some stuff onto that. And then it was like, okay, you got to be in the show. So then we had to squeeze them into the room where we were. We brought everything back. We got There was a bigger room. We reset it back up in a little bigger room they had. Then it became, what are we going to do for the show? We don't want to have an opening act how are we going to do Primus? Okay, we'll do Primus for the first set and we'll do Wonka for the second set. Okay. Yeah. How are we going to do that? The, everybody was perplexed. What are we going to do? We don't want to reveal the Wonka show for Primus to play yeah. on the, you know, like, because the drum set and the Wonka kit were all in one big circle, you know, inadvertently out of them wanting to play Primus songs and then play Wonka songs just while we were rehearsing, you know. Was, right. was all the reason why those were all together so uh, i'm gonna take credit and say i was the one that said what we should what you should do is we should set up another bunch of gear in front of a curtain drop a curtain i'll set up another drum kit and we'll just like put a- fake amps in front of the curtain so it looks like you guys are just playing on that shit you yeah. come out in your street clothes and then we can like Put the front curtain away, and then take that shit away, and then expose the Wonka thing. And then Les is like, "That's it. That's perfect. Yes, we'll do that. Let's figure that out. Let's do it." So that's that's what that became. So then for New Year's, it was known we had to rent another drum kit for Tim, big right. enough to do the Primus kit. <clears throat> and then we got Lur got some funky shitty little amp, and we used Les's old killer '60s Ampeg Portaflex amp, which is the same one he uses on the Wonka uh, the the it to Twang. Any oh, of gotcha. you have seen Duo to Twang, he had that little flip-top amp. He's got an original 60s one with the little glass plate lights up and we, I brought that down out of his house and we just set that up in front of the curtain. So they were essentially playing their rigs that were right behind the curtain. Yeah. You know what I mean? But we would put these little amps out in front of the curtain so it looked like they were just playing through these little amps being Primus, right? Yeah.
1: That was really effective because uh, for those yeah. of you that don't know, I was there that night and uh, of course, sorry, you were too. But the the stage setup that you're describing made it look like they were just playing a little club, uh, you know, like yeah, it was 1989
2: again.
0: And Yeah, there was even the, the secondary backdrop. It was very and reminiscent so, yeah. of the early and days so of the band. Yeah, they me even, I mean, they yeah. even incorporated YYZ into John the Fisherman.
2: Right? Well, let me touch on that. So, so that's the decision is made. That's how we're going to do it. The Wonka kit and the Primus kit could all go behind this mid-curtain because – it was decided they would come back out and do some primus in the end for the encore. You know, that was already decided. Okay. So then we'll get the second, third kit and set it up in front of this curtain. Okay. So then I said, well, dude, if you guys are going to come out on these shitty little amps, let me go dig through storage and maybe we can find that old suck on his banner and hang that up. So it just looks like you guys are the old band. Yeah. So go do that. Yes. That's fucking awesome idea. Let's do that. So I go and I dig out that old banner and sure enough, I find it and we, take it to some dude who stretches it out and gets all the folded wrinkles out of it you know with a hair dryer or something you know it was it had been folded up into a hamper for decades so okay so like a little square yeah there were there were square folds all over the whole thing so they got that all kind of as good as they could and we hung that up and that was awesome you know to for the all the new school primus kids to come out and i i didn't Probably ninety percent of the kids there had no idea that that was the actual banner they hung up on the Frizzle Fry era. You uh, know? I was I was curious about that because it looked pretty. Fresh. Might have been right. It might have been right after Frizzle Fry because Frizzle Fry they had the three Skeeter dudes that Les painted. There was a triple backdrop of oh. the Skeeter doing different positions. Was kind of Frizzle Fry. So okay. I think that might have been the backdrop they used when they were opening for bands at the beginning of Season Cheese because they were primarily an opening band for a lot of that for right. bigger bands. Damn, that thing looked great
1: and uh, that was that was a brilliant setup. I thought it was just perfect uh mm-hmm. for them playing those primus uh songs for the first set and then that reveal uh, Yes. You know, I'm, I'm sure you, you noticed on tour, uh, if you, if you were you might've been busy getting into that Oompa Loompa thing, but every time that curtain opened, especially the few times I saw it, the crowd just went, whoa, you know, and that was know,
2: the desired I would, reaction. I saw it every night because I didn't get into the Oompa till right before we did it. But okay. That was a, a spectacular moment for me to witness as well too, you know, <laughs> especially, you know, you could see who was on acid and who wasn't in the front row, you know, when the curtain <laughs> opened was open. Everyone would be like, whoa. And then people that were tripping would be like. <laughs> you know like <laughs> holy fuck but uh there was a moment where les t- came to me when i was digging out that banner uh where he said hey we're gonna do these windows we want to do these like stained glass kind of windows soya do we still have the punch bowl windows right said, if you've ever seen the punch bowl set there was the, win- the room that we had right i said yes i have seen those so i went and dug those out and i brought those to them or i think i opened one up on on les's driveway and the art dude came and looked at it with less and they were like, ah, I don't know, that's kind of that's not really what we're looking for. So those went back away. But uh we almost used those. I thought it would have been a cool little mashup to get some of the punch bowl set in there too, but it didn't happen. So we went with those other ones that look more like windows, square glassed windows. You know?
1: Right. Uh and that, that Wonka set with those windows though was reminiscent, at least for me, because I I like I just remember at the show thinking,
0: I wonder if those are the Punchbowl ones. I felt the same thing yeah. the first time I saw them. Yeah,
2: yeah. I, I can't remember what the why the decision was made. I, I think it was because Les wanted the windows on either on both sides of the big video wall, and the Wonka or the punch bowl one was a big gigantic pane window that was the upstage drape. It wasn't split into smaller sections. Oh right. And then the ones on the. The punch bowl that were kind of the sidewalls were like trapezoid style, you know, to make the room have depth. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like the window was taller at the downstage edge and got smaller as it went back behind the drum. So it looked like the room went back.
1: Vanishing point. Yep.
2: So they didn't really work. And then the one that was in the back was too big and it was only one. And we're like, we'll just get something else. Okay.
1: So, so far we've, we've covered uh, Tim returns. There's some rehearsal. Get in. there's finally a decision made for New Year's Eve, and Mm -hmm. there's rehearsal for that. And then they decide to record some of that stuff to lay Mm -hmm. it down. Then they're going back to rehearse, and then New Year's Eve's coming. So you're setting up for that. Mm -hmm. New Year's Eve happens. Take us through that evening, unless I missed something leading up to it.
2: Man, that evening was crazy. You know, A, getting all that stuff in there, (laughs) me and the (laughs) backline guys. And, you know, obviously the set design for that night was created that moment. We didn't build the candy and all that stuff prior. It all got made that afternoon. That whole set got built that afternoon. Oh, and okay. So we showed up with the gear and the blow up mushrooms showed up and those got blown up. And then the people that were doing the backdrops and the candy and the everything else, they, they actually showed up like two or three hours late. Oh my. For some reason. I remember because they showed up and they were like a tornado trying to set up all the stuff they made, and they ran out of time. They didn't get to set up everything they want wanted to. Oh, really? And because it wasn't set up for tearing down and taking to the next city, it just was. They just kept piling more shit on top of more shit. You know, like <laughs> so it just it was like, dude, you can't put all that crap here. You know, we got up there's a guitar ramp here, and Larry's got to walk it. Doesn't matter. I made these trees, and I got this, and this candy's <laughs> going to go here, and I got this vision of this. It's like, okay, <laughs> that can't be here. <laughs> it's like you know, you, right. you're not paying attention to what's going on here. That's great. You made all this cool stuff, but we all have to work together. So it kind of <laughs> just was this frantic struggle to build that whole thing. And of course, it had to get built so that when the center stage curtain came down, none of that stuff was on the other side of that line. So we had to tape a line down right across the whole stage and told the to set people. You cannot go past this line. Oh my God. You know, so which funny. they didn't like because they're like, well, we want to, well, dude, when the main stage curtain goes down, you can come out real quick. Well, it'll be a 20 minute changeover and you can dress up candy everywhere or do whatever the hell past that line. But before the first set, you cannot. Right. So, I mean, it was just on the fly moment, you know? And so it was a very frantic day. We did get it all together. Ben Barnes was there. We had Mike Dillon set up and Scarrick was there to play we didn't have to set up a riser for him for ben we had to set up a little four by eight riser for him to sit on and play his cello you know and obviously mike Dillon had the eight by eight with his vibes and his percussion and all that up behind less's amp uh-huh. so we 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 did it you know and then of course you know we're down downstairs and we kind of got through sound check and then someone shows up oh okay the oop is- Oopa costumes are here. It's like, oh no, here we go. I, I, as soon as I heard that, I was like, oh God. And I was sitting in the dressing room with, it was me and Les and Flounce. And we're just kind of sitting there and like lady comes in who's got the the heads and she walks in with one of the heads. It was like, oh my God. And I was like, yeah, dude, this is it, dude. Oh, killer, killer. It was like, oh, these are hilarious. You know, okay, Fred, put one on, man. Sawyer, put one on. This is okay. You guys are the Oopas. I was like, oh God. All right. Also a last minute thing then, huh? Oh, I mean it was Les's Les has lots of ideas. And then because he's got so many things going on and and the vision is is this big, you can't he can't really outline it in no time, you know? We had no time. So all of a sudden those things show, oh yeah, there's that too. So yeah, you and Fred, you're gonna do it. Let's go up on stage right now and work it out. It's like, oh fuck, okay. <laughs> so okay, well, so we'll do it. It's gonna be during the OOPA songs. Was, okay, you guys, let's play the OOPA songs. And what are you guys gonna do? And we start running around and like doing stupid shit. And it's is like, no, 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 no. no. It can't be like that. We can't just have you guys running around. You gotta do something like like bounce up and down or do some kind of dance or that's that's orchestrated in a sense, but something easy because we only had like two more minutes till we had to figure it out. You know what I mean? Like there's just no fucking time. There's no pre-production rehearsals on this. So we came up with the squat thing real quick and I think Les wanted it to go twice as fast, but it was impossible
1: uh <laughs> You'd have you worn your knees
2: I, out. You would while. have had a heart attack trying to go mm, mm, oompa oompa do. He wanted to go like oompa 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 do, and <laughs> I was like, no, dude, I'm like, we can do that, yeah. And then Fred, Fred couldn't even do it in the faster double time because he just didn't have enough rhythm in him to do it like that. But it made sense to do it how we did it, and that stuck onto the, the tour it was hilarious. Then. So then we got that together. And and of course, you know, before all that, you know, Lur was, was told he's going to sing that one song, you know. And so that in itself was such a monumental, like, I can't believe this is going to happen thing in rehearsals, you know. Yeah. Like Lure, and so he was starting to sing it in rehearsals, you know, and it was just like, wow, this is fucking awesome. Because as you all know, Frankie as well, Mr. Collector of Bootleg Shows, anytime Lur puts his mouth in front of that mic, A, you can't hear it. And B, you can't hear it. (laughs) B, you can never understand what the hell he's saying or singing. And when Les Banter talks to him, he always goes out and goes, "Ah, ah." he doesn't even say anything when Les asks him a question, you know. So (laughs) to hear Lur belting out those lyrics, I mean, all the old guard, that were all there. We all were just like like high-fiving, you know, like this is amazing. You know, (laughs) it was so cool to watch Lur sing that, you know. Well, yeah,
1: was that a moment where everybody uh, side stage just had to stop and watch? And, oh, and experience totally, that?
2: yeah, totally. anybody who's anybody in the Primus family was like crowded the fuck around to watch Lur sing that thing, man. It was awesome, and he nailed it, man. I mean, that was goosebumps, hair standing up on your arms when he belted that shit out at the show, man. That was yeah. amazing.
1: I know, I know. I, I said it before, all the, I think when he was on, but uh, it it was just such a strange moment because I was actually on Les's yeah. side that night. Uh-huh. And I I heard this vocal and Les wasn't even near his microphone. I went, hold on, what you know, looking around, what the hell's going on? And Larry's at the mic. Mind blower, mind blower for us in the audience too. Couldn't believe it was happening. Yeah, it's amazing, <laughs>
2: incredible. <laughs> yeah, and then whatever we got through the show, the show was was absolutely unbelievably killer. It went off without a hitch. Whatever hitches that happened were just fine. There was no show stoppers. There was no. You know, like that sucked. We all got done with that gig and we got it all packed up. Me and Josh threw everything in that fucking Ryder truck. You know, didn't even care. Just got it all the fuck in there to get back to the Katati the next day. You yeah. know, meaning the drum kit, there was no road cases or nothing. It was just like, we just, all the hands, like everybody just grabbed something, throw it in that, not throw it, you know, just like, just stuff it in this truck over here with yeah. all this gear. Just throw it, don't even worry about where. whatever, you know. And. It was very ironic, not ironic, but it was very funny because the next day we we all just were like reeling about how killer it was, you know, and what a fucking New Year's that was and what a great show and how the hell when Les said, I want to do Wonka and everybody's like, oh God, what's this going to be two, <laughs> three weeks later, like that was probably the most incredible New Year's Primus show that's ever happened, you know? And instantly, because there's social media and and the Wi-Fi and the Internet now, it's just the the reviews and the comments from fans just started pouring in like you've never read, you know, review after review after review from fans like that is the greatest show I've ever seen. That is the greatest primus New Year's ever. That is the greatest primus show I've ever seen oh my God, I can't believe how fucking killer that is. And people mm-hmm. go, I can't believe I missed it. I can't believe I missed it. Was it really that good? It was that good, you know? And yeah. so we're, we're sitting there having coffee at Gatati, trying to get all this stuff set back up again, like maybe two days later or something. And I'm looking at Josh and and he's looking at me and I'm like, you know what's coming. He's like, oh, I know. Oh, I, know. <laughs> I said, it's going to happen. He goes, oh, I know, I know. And sure enough, you know, once we got up to rehearsing again, like Brad pulls this aside He goes, all right, guys, so uh once we get this record together, I'm uh, just going to take this on tour. I'm like, God, okay, that's cool. So, you know, it was cool because then I knew I had to actually build that drum kit and get cases to actually make it travel and be able to set up and tear down again, you know, and figure out how to like, actually do it and not just throw it all in the back of a rider truck and yeah, puke it onto a stage and kind of get it back together and puke it all back into a rider truck and puke it all back into <laughs> recording. You know? So But you had lead time for the tour, right? Yes, we did. I had time to get that all together. I mean, for the most part, a lot of it kind of came together as we went on the tour as I could get stuff. But yeah.
1: That sounds right. It 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 was, you know, from a a fan perspective, it was a pretty magical evening uh, for myself and, you know, anybody I talked to who attended or listened to the audience recordings later. It was in the sense that... (laughs) here was 45 minutes to an hour of something you'd never seen before. Mm-hmm. So it was all brand new. And mm-hmm. there was this sense of wonder when the stage <laughs> curtains parted, Mike Dillon and Skerrick were there for crying out loud. Then there was this five piece plan, pretty incredible. Uh, and they made, you know, and they, they yeah. stuck around through the, the primus songs at the end, if I recall correctly.
2: Man, um, when, when we were all standing there behind the curtain before the the, the Wonka reveal. You know, and we all had our red jumpsuits on and everybody had their costumes on and the mm-hmm. stage was just fucking glorious, you know, and the the, the the designers came out. Like I said, they added all this other extra stuff that they couldn't fit behind that mid-stage curtain and it just spilled all down to the front of the stage. And It was just like, man, this is fucking awesome. Like even us, you know, we were all impressed with what we had accomplished, you know. In, in all aspects of it, you know, like the band were stoked. They were about to play this performance that no one had any fucking idea what was about to happen. Right. You know? Yeah. <clears throat> and we had heard it, but we had no idea how it was going to go over or if it was going to be good, or was it going to fall on its face and everybody go, no, Tommy, the cat, what the fuck, you know, we didn't, we were all just like, Oh my God, this is so fucking cool. But then to, you know, to get to see all the accolades that that were just spewed at it after it was just like a trophy, you know, like we did it, you know, Oh yeah, it was magical. That whole that whole experience to that New Year's moment was very magical in all aspects. I have to say. No, we were. I was buzzing. I could see the crowd was genuinely like, "Holy motherfucking shit! What am I about to witness here?" (laughs) And and as it's unfolding, song to song, you could just see everybody was just like, they. How in the fuck did they do this? They're like right. this is so fucking awesome, you know? Like, I can't. Of course, Primus did this. You know, of course, Les came up with this fucking idea. Like you could just halfway through, you could just see everybody going, "Yep, knew yeah. it. I knew it would be something fucking awesome because Les always comes up with something awesome." You know?
1: <laughs> That's kind of how it was. It's like this is. I'm not. It's. I'm. I was shocked, but I wasn't surprised if that makes sense. was uh, mm-hmm. like, yeah, this is. This just sounds natural, Frankie. I mean, when did you first hear a uh, audience recording or see videos of this?
0: Um, I remember being extremely curious about it since it was announced. Um, I had no idea how it would turn out. At that point, um, I wasn't familiar at all with the film or the music. Uh So I didn't want to check any of that out. And I wanted my first impression to be the way Primus performed the songs. So I remember searching on the internet the, the following day to see if there were any recordings available yet. And it didn't take long before there was a full performance on YouTube. So I remember watching that back to back, but I mean, it was actually a full performance of the entire concert, not just the Wonka section. So first mm-hmm. I watched the the first set, you know, where they had the sock on this backdrop and, you know, it was very nostalgic to see like, you know, this stage being so reminiscent of the early days and, You know, even listening to that YYZ tease before John the Fisherman. So after that, I think um, I waited um, a few hours just, you know, to approach the Wonka set with a fresh perspective. And then I came back to the video and I watched the whole performance, you know, from back to back. And I was just blown away by what they had done in terms of the stage decoration, the drum set, the sound, the vocals, the costumes. I mean. It was incredible. I don't think I had seen Primus being that theatric before. I mean, Punchbowl had the Punchbowl tour had some cool stuff, mm-hmm. and the 3D tour was amazing, but I had never seen them do something so out there until that point. And what was also really cool is that it didn't take away from, from the music at all. I mean, it was not distracting in any way. It just enhanced. I mean, all the visuals just enhanced what they were playing on stage. And yes, I was completely blown away by I Want It Now. I couldn't believe I was <laughs> hearing Lur sing. Mm-hmm. And after that, I think, you know, I I wasn't a member of a, of any forum because that was a time when the bullboard was closed for new members. So I didn't participate in any discussions but i remember reading all the impressions from the people who were there and i think all of us were wondering if it was going to be a one-off or if it was going to develop into an album or a tour so, so tell me this fact,
2: tell yeah. me this because i don't read all that stuff but what, what were the what were the comments you were seeing about it what, did, does it line up with what i was saying about the ones i yeah yeah
0: see? people people said it was amazing I think everybody was extremely happy to have been there. And those of us who couldn't catch it, I mean, thankfully, somebody recorded the full show because it's really something legendary.
1: But Frankie, you went into that with no foreknowledge as far as uh, you hadn't read the book by Roald Dahl or seen the Gene Wilder film? Wow, It was all new to me. Wow. Uh, So I had a totally different perspective, of course, because I'd read the book as a child and then seen the film at some point. Uh, so to hear those arrangements, and we'll talk about them in detail, but those arrangements, which are so different than what you, you hear and see in the film, yeah. uh, was uh, was a trip for me. Because I'm going, this is Primus doing it, but it doesn't sound like anything like the film. And we know that Les says, if I'm going to cover something, we're either going to do it straight ahead, like they're doing with the Rush stuff. They're They're going note for note, or we're going to do it in our own way. This was their own way.
2: Uh, there really was no other way for primus to do that sound without putting the twist on it that they did you know and uh keeping it in an orchestrated kind of manner yet structuring it like a song at the same time was was really genius and i think the whole idea that was brought that became of the drum set like that to be non-traditional just totally was the glue to the whole thing you know like it just became something super unique, you know, which was awesome. Because you listen to the actual soundtrack, and then you listen to the primacy. like you said, they're they're not the same. And much of the, anything, you know, right. other than The <laughs> key structures or whatever, in the words, but they took it to their own their own place, and it was really fucking cool, you know.
1: Right. Speaking of that, because I, I mean, I have a little history with the book and the film. You know, saw it, enjoyed it. I don't think it had the same impact that it did mm-hmm. on one. Young Les Claypool, but Frankie, you've got some information about kind of Les's background and personal history with this that got us got you guys up to that moment and had Soya in a Oompa costume bouncing around on stage.
0: Sure. Before we go into that, I was wondering, Josh, if you could play um, Les Claypool's own introduction before the Wonka set, which I think is pretty humorous. Oh, oh this was
1: hilarious! Yeah. So he filmed filmed a a short piece. It got got a lot of cheers, I remember. Where Uh, where was this from? This is from the Fox. This is that New Year's Eve. And when Uh, was it played? It was a little video intro that Les had recorded uh, before they all took the stage. Um, For the Wonka or? For the Wonka set, yeah.
2: Had the curtain opened yet?
1: I think this projection screen came down in front of the curtain. Okay, I'm pretty sure. so I, the,
2: I, I probably don't have much recollection of this because we were you were backstage to get everything ready yeah and set for the mo- we only had 20 minutes. yeah so yeah I, I'm eager to see this. I, I don't know if I've ever seen this or heard this. okay
1: This did not make it onto the tour. this was just for the New Year's Eve. So here's Les's this is audio of Les's introduction. <laughs>
0: talking about that steaming pile of feces that came down the pipe a few years back. <laughs> back. No, no, no. None of this androgynous Michael Jackson wannabe Willy Wonka I'm talking <laughs> wild. Wow. I'm, <laughs> I'm talking David L. Walker.
2: That's hilarious. I think I remember hearing him talk about that. I, I, I'd missed that at that night. That's <laughs> I remember we were all laughing. I, now that I've heard it again, the steaming pile of feces of a film that came out a few years ago, which was the Tim Burton one or who did it? it yeah. was, yep. With Johnny Burton. Depp on the lead. Yeah. Yep. I never saw that one either, but I, I wouldn't have even <laughs> wanted to see it anyways. <laughs> Johnny, wasn't Johnny Depp in it or something?
1: Depp was Wonka, yeah. And uh, yep. if I recall, even Gene Wilder wasn't a fan. He said he he liked Johnny Depp as an actor, but he he found that remake to be an insult. Um, he That's didn't great. like what Tim Burton did with it.
2: Did you guys see it? Yeah, it I was awful. I didn't see it. <laughs> it was <laughs> awful. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, there you, go. I, so you No, I don't watch new movies and anything like that where there's all the CGI bullshit going on. I, I'm not a fan of that kind of stuff, especially remakes where they take their own take on it. Which is ironic that. Primus is doing their own take on the soundtrack to the Gene Wilder movie. Yet he's com- complaining about a someone's own take on that
0: movie. Oh, right. we'll, we'll yeah. go into that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll go into that later. Yeah, oh, okay. yeah. it, it okay. is funny
1: how we kind of hold on uh, dearly to some things and and cannot see the merit
2: in something similar in parallel situations. to two, actually you're doing the same thing that you're complaining about is that an oxymoron that you're <laughs> i don't know if it you know it's it's one of those weird things
1: where i i don't know if it's hypocritical excuse me i don't know if it's hypocritical because you are of a different mindset about you know holding this film or this song or this thing near and dear yeah. to your heart because of the emotional attachment but it is it is kind of funny that that he was giving him shit for that well frankie do you have uh, I, i'm sure you have tons of information for us
0: Yeah, I got tons. I'm strapping
1: in for your essay.
0: So Josh, we can kick off with um, the impact this film had on Les Claypool. I'm going to give you a couple of quotes. As a child, my first obsession was with Adam West and Batman, and then I got really into Willy Wonka. Hmm. I have early memories as a young kid playing around with stuff in the bathroom cabinet and a fake mustache and trying to be in that weird world. And now with my kids getting really into it, it seems to have followed me around. You have certain points in your life that are way posted by music and film. And Willy Wonka was a big part of my life when I was eight or nine years old. And then, though, my drugger teenage years and onwards. I was in grammar school and was completely enamored by the film. And can remember sitting in the theater watching the credits roll up with the the imagery from the factory. Mm -hmm. There weren't kids' movies that came out every five minutes back then. I was locked in from the opening credits when I saw chocolate coming down a conveyor belt. I was too young for an actual erection, but I was having a mental erection watching the opening credits. As a young fellow, a huge portion of my existence was impacted by pop culture. Wonka was a huge part of my existence, like when kids got into Star Wars. Until Joss came along, I was all things Wonka.
1: The imagery uh, that he relays there is disturbing, but also uh, (laughs) quite, I would say, quite accurate. Because there are... It wasn't wasn't, uh, the chocolate factory for me. I... You know, like something like Jurassic Park? Sure. Like that that's kind of, I would have been in the same neighborhood there. <laughs> so I, I completely understand. He really has that, that childhood connection and it followed him through. That's, uh, that's fascinating.
0: Yes. He also said, when I read the books as a kid, they felt very dark. Roald Dahl had a twisted way of writing. and the book was quite darker than the film. As a kid, all I'm seeing in the opening scenes is all this chocolate, but then I could sense something more was going on underneath. My childhood hero was Gene Wilder. He was my favorite Mm. actor as a kid, and I loved his other films, like Young Frankenstein, The Producers. Our take on Willy Wonka with Primus came around when we were kicking around other ideas of projects we could do. So this is where it gets very interesting. Let's mention that they were planning to tackle Magical Mystery Tour by the Beatles. But then the Flaming Lips did Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club oh. Band. So they decided that it would be kind of a copycat move to do a Beatles album as well. So let's toss around the idea of doing Willy Wonka. I mean, just to just to add to everything that Soya gracefully mentioned with us, I recall Les mentioning that they started out with Candyman, and they would see where it would take them from there. I mean, if Candyman worked, then they would see how the rest of the of the songs came about. They jammed that song, and oh. the notion of performing the entire soundtrack was born. Les had one initial concern. He said, I don't want to piss anyone off, especially Gene Wilder, right. because he referred to the Chocolate Factory multiple times as a sacred cow, you know? Right. Something that is so ingrained in popular culture that if you modify it in any way or if you don't do it justice, you know, a lot of people are going to be upset. This is pretty peculiar, right, to think about this quote and and then listen to his perspective about Tim Burton's version of, of the film.
1: Right. Yeah, you make a good point there. And it's, uh, you know, on the back of the... Wonka record. It says this project is dedicated to the wondrous talent of Gene Wilder. So we have, absolutely, you know, we have him not wanting to piss off people because it's a sacred cow and it's sacred to him. So he's, you know, he's trying to honor the imagination of Roald Dahl, Gene Wilder, yeah. everybody who's involved in this uh, book and film. And but at the same time, he's he's defending it from <laughs> other people who have their own interpretations of it, <laughs> yeah. which is fascinating. Uh, I don't think I'd heard that about the magical mystery tour before yeah, it's like, surprising,
0: pricing right
1: yeah that's that is surprising and you know who knows how far that got if they were just talking about it but <laughs> you know that's another what if question we can go uh down a rabbit hole with sometime
0: sure you asked me if I had watched the film or read the book prior to listening to Primus perform the songs and I told you I hadn't. Actually, my first approach to the film was very interesting because shortly after the album came out, somebody over at uh, Vimeo did a very interesting experiment. They synced the songs from the Primus album with the film. So that was the first time that I watched the film. It was actually with the Primus songs instead of the original soundtrack from the film. So... What would happen in that version is that, you know, the dialogue was normal, but then when a the musical number came on, the guy that uploaded this video had edited the Primus songs into the film. Of course, it required some sequences to kind of be stretched out and repeated so they would fit the music, but it was a very interesting watch. And it's kind of reminiscent to the experiment people used to do about watching The Wizard of Oz synced with The right. Dark Side of the Moon. <laughs>
2: right on. Was it cool though? did it fit? I mean, was it... It fits pretty well. Yeah, it was actually pretty cool. So that's the first time you saw the movie was with Primus as the music though. That's right. Wow, wow that's amazing. Is there a link for that? Can you find it? Is...
0: I'll I'll dig it up. I'll see if it's
2: still available. I would actually like to watch that. That sounds interesting.
1: Yeah. There's always people asking for that link all over the internet and I don't know where it is. Um I think I watched a few minutes of it and it was really cool. <laughs> you know, I didn't get to watch the whole thing unfortunately. But I would like to as an experiment. So you got to do that, Frankie, and if it fits that's great because, you know, those songs, it's it's essentially a musical, you know, Because with all these songs. I would argue that it's not – that the Roald Doll book is not a kid's book as in for kids. I would say it's a cautionary tale.
0: And maybe oh, yeah. We'll, we'll get into that. There's yeah. plenty to discuss regarding the book. Oops. So I have some interesting facts regarding Roald Dahl for you. Please. In April 1942, when he was age 25, Dahl was posted to Washington, D.C. to join the British Embassy as assistant heir attaché. In the U.S., Dahl became a spy, working in a division of MI6 alongside Ian Fleming, the creator of the James Bond novels. You bet. James and the Giant Peach from 1961 was Dahl's first novel aimed at children. Roll actually towered at 1.98 meters tall. Some of his most popular works okay. underwent a number of early drafts. The first drafts were much scarier than the published books.
1: <laughs> so he had, to, he had to tone it down?
0: <laughs> yeah. several times, including Wonka, and I'll, I'll give you some info on that. Dal contributed to the invention of the modern ventricular catheter and shunt valves used in neurosurgery. The innovation came in the wake of a personal tragedy involving his son. Oh, wow. He invented more than 500 new words and character names. To mark the centenary of his birth, Oxford University Press created the Roald Dahl Dictionary, featuring real and imaginary words used by the author in his books. The dictionary reportedly took more than five years to complete. Wow. He was never seen as a particularly good writer when he was a child. An English teacher wrote in his school report, I have never met anybody who so persistently writes words meaning the exact opposite of what is intended. (laughs) Mm -hmm. He was actually friends with Ernest Hemingway. He could speak English, Norwegian, and Swahili. Wow. And here's a very peculiar thing. It is said that Roald Dahl was reportedly so angry with the treatment of his Charlie and the Chocolate Factory book, that he refused to ever watch the complete film in its entirety. Once, while staying in a hotel, he accidentally turned into a television airing the movie, but changed the channel immediately when he realized what he was watching. However, photographic evidence contradicts this report. Behind-the-scenes footage on the DVD shows him looking very happy while visiting the set, and he even attended the film premiere. Julie Dawn Cole who played Veruca, commented in the 2011 extras that she remembers him as a large, scary man. As a result, you know, of whatever happening between that premiere and his later perception about the film is that he refused to sell the company the rights to his sequel, Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator. So for some unknown reason, he was actually pretty happy with the film at the beginning, but he disowned it in the later part of his life.
1: If you're the IP owner of a book and it's adapted to a film and you're not really involved in the making of a film, you've already sold the rights. You're essentially powerless. So I can see him being upset after the fact. So maybe after the premiere, he said, I'm never going to watch this again, (laughs) you know, that sort of thing. So maybe that's where he went with it. Uh, but yeah, he was an interesting dude. There's a I got a piece of trivia right back for you. So the sure. the, the guys that made the music and, and and lyrics for this Gene Wilder film, Leslie Bricusse and uh, Anthony Newley, Newley also wrote uh, the title song for Goldfinger, a James Bond cool. movie. So yeah. there's there's another uh, Ian Fleming role doll connection.
0: That's amazing.
1: Eh, not as cool as yours, but close enough.
0: I can tell you about the novel. The story was originally inspired by Roald Dahl's experience of chocolate companies during his school days. Cadbury would often send test packages to the school children in exchange of their opinions on the new products. At that time, Cadbury and Roundtree were England's two largest chocolate makers, Mm -hmm. and they often tried to steal trade secrets from each other. Because of this, both companies became highly protective of the recipes. It was this secrecy that inspired Dahl to write the story. So he said, while boarding at Repton Public School, my classmates used to be guinea pigs of the chocolate-making company Cadbury. Each year, we would be sent the newest creations that they made to test. It was then I realized that inside this great Cadbury's chocolate factory, there must be an inventing room, a secret place where fully grown men and women in white overalls spent all their time playing around with sticky-boiling messes. The novel was not without controversy. In the first edition, the Oompa Loompas were described as African pygmies. After the film was announced, observations about the Umpalumpa concept resembling slavery sparked concerns in Dahl, who decided to remove all references to Africa, and he modified radically the appearance of the Oompa Loompas. Several unused chapters of the book have been discovered. In the original draft, there were actually nine golden tickets for the factory tour, and the names of the unused children include mm-hmm. Clarence Crump and Bertie Upside and Terrence Rupper. Elvira Entwistle, who was renamed Veruca Salt. Violet Glockenberry, who was renamed Bewgrave. Miranda Grope and August Pottle, combined into a single character Augustus Gloop. Oh. Miranda Mary Pinker, renamed from Miranda Group, Marvin Prune, Wilbur Rice and Tommy Troutbeck, and you're going to love this one. Herpes Trout, renamed Mike TV.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Herb was uh, dressed up as Mike TV on New Year's Eve and throughout the tour, correct?
0: That's correct. There you go. The children in the novel are severely punished for disobeying Wonka. A tradition that was prevalent throughout children's books for several years, one remarkably famous example being Shock-Headed Peter from 1845, in which several of the kids in the stories are killed because of misbehavior. Right. The punishments were reflected in a much, much lighter tone and more playful manner in the Chocolate Factory film.
1: Dahl would have grown up reading those stories and things like Grimm's fairy tales in which children meet uh, pretty gruesome ends for misbehaving or not listening to their parents, all those wonderful life lessons that were pounded into kids. You know, exactly. In pretty lousy ways back then, for sure. So that definitely was an influence
0: on him. I got some film trivia for you. Bring it. After reading the script, Gene Wilder said he would take the role of Willy Wonka under one condition, that he would be allowed to limp and then suddenly somersault in the scene when he first meets the children. When director Mel Stewart asked him why, Jean replied that having Wonka do this meant that from that time on, no one will know when Wonka is lying or telling the truth. Even Julie Don Cole was fooled by the scene in which Willie limps out of his factory to greet the Golden Ticket winners. She mentions in the DVD commentary that she thought Gene Wilder had injured his leg for real. This oh, yeah, resulted yeah. in her being just as stunned by Willie's somersault as the rest of the audience was.
1: Right. So her reaction on camera is a true. It's reaction realistic. Of the kid. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. When Gene Wilder passed away in 2016, Peter Ostrom changed his social media profile status to former child actor, veterinarian, inherited a chocolate factory on 29 August 2016. (laughs) So they remained pretty close. Actually, Peter retired from acting. The chocolate river was made from 150,000 gallons of water, real chocolate and cream. The filmmakers had to change the formula for the chocolate river because originally the concoction they were using turned into blood red. Because of the <laughs> cream, <laughs> the mixture began to spoil, and by the end of the filming, it smelled horrible. Yeah. Michael Bolner, who played Augustus Globe, later described it as dirty, stinky water. Ugh. According to the DVD commentary, Julie Don Cole kept several props from the movie after being instructed not to, including a golden ticket an everlasting gobstopper, and a Willy Wonka candy wrapper. There's actually footage of Pawn Stars, uh, the the cast of, well, one of the members of Pawn Stars, I think it's Rick, holding some of these items in his hands. So these items (laughs) have been uh, in several auctions over the years. Another interesting bit of trivia is that the final Oompa Loompa song took 50 takes.
1: Oh, holy crap, I didn't know that.
0: Yeah. Wilder said that he wanted more than anything to warn Peter about the yelling in the final scene. You know, when they go into his office and he tells him that he's not winning anything. Right. He warned Peter in advance that he was going to yell at him in that scene because he he was concerned that he would get upset. They became good friends during the production and they ate lunch together every day.
1: Yeah. Gene was uh Gene was just a sweet guy. Any interview you saw, it came across stories about him, it came across that way and he obviously was really good with kids, but man, could he sell a role, you know. Young Frankenstein and Absolutely. that comes to mind and Blazing Saddles, really anything that he was in. Those movies even with Richard, man, those were awesome. So, I'm a, I'm a huge Gene Wilder fan myself.
0: In my case, um regardless of the primus music, you know, just Watching, I I later had the chance to watch the original version of the film with the original soundtrack, and I think it's a beautiful film. You know, it's something very much of its time, and it reflects one of the quotes from Willy Wonka, which goes, "A little nonsense now and then is relished by the wisest men." I think the the film perfectly encapsulates that, and the ending sequence, you know, when they go into the elevator and Willy Wonka tells charlie that he inherited the factory you know that that final scene i think it's one of the most moving pieces of cinema history i have seen in your case josh what is your impression about the film
1: you know i liked it a lot as a youth and and it holds up and that's what's really important that's it could it it can stand repeated viewing uh given its uh lush visuals and fantastic story thanks to Roll dahl i was a huge Roll dahl fan uh, as a teenager and into college even i was reading roll doll because i just delighted in the darkness it was disguised as something else and then you get you would get that dark twist and so uh one thing i was doing is i was studying short stories a lot because i so yeah, i was going to be a writer for a while worked out <laughs> worked out great but uh the i was studying short stories especially and d- some of doll's short stories uh, are so visceral uh that I, you know i still have uh, these images in my mind's eye from reading them 20 25 years ago so uh to have that kind of foundation to build upon to to create this film, first of all, you have to do it right and I think that the makers of the of that film from 71 did it right. I, I like I said, haven't seen the Ot five version, but I'm pretty satisfied with what I saw. Uh as a kid and I think it holds up
0: Sure. And, uh, you know, just like you, Josh, uh, I was also fascinated by Doll when I was a child because I loved James and the Giant Peach. I watched that movie hundreds of times when I was a child and also Matilda. So I think we were all touched by his talent at some point during our lives.
2: So how about you? Were you? Did you get some uh, doll exposure? Oh, no, just that movie. But I was going to say it's the fact that I'm a bit older than you, Josh. I'm just saying when I was a kid and we saw Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, of course we loved it. But at the time, it was like cutting edge that you had that type of a fantasy on the screen about candy and Candy Factory. I mean, when it came on once a year and come on TV or whatever, you know, it was like the big event on ABC is playing Willy Wonka again. We were fucking glued to the TV just to see it again, you know, because there was no VHS and there was no you couldn't just go rent it. Right. Like when the TV network played it once a year. You knew you saw it come up in the TV guide, and you wrote it on the wall on a piece of paper to not miss it. You know, and it was a huge impact on us. You know, like that one, and like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang was another one that we would just flip out (laughs) to because at that time those were cutting edge. You know, that was like just fantasy on the screen that you just couldn't even imagine. You know, I mean, obviously we weren't we weren't literary enough to have read those books and our mind expanding into understanding fantasy like that you know i mean when i was a kid when i saw it that would have been in the mid-70s is when i saw willie will for the first time you know i hadn't read any books you just saw that shit and it was like whoa holy fuck you know <laughs> <laughs> you
0: well,
2: know what a, i mean yeah that's I mean, like you know like you make, yeah. frankie saying james and the giant peach and matilda like i those are like i never even saw those movies uh, my kids that they didn't even see those movies we had them they might have seen james and the giant peach. you know what i mean it's like yeah Like now all of a sudden it's become eras of stuff, you know, and like that was my era as a little kid was to see that stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. really want
1: That's an important distinction to make because I, I I think it was a rental for me and it was, oh, I can go watch it anytime. You know, my parents will take me to the Hogan's video.
2: Right. Yeah. You know, me and my wife played that movie for our kids, which would have been in the two thousands, you know, and they, they were modestly interested if at all you know like (laughs) it just was so boring to them in a sense you know because of the progressions of media and entertainment and what you were given as a kid to watch and understand you know oh sure i get that you know i mean i remember Les was really like oh i just can't wait for little kids to see this and get exposed to it because of the primus experience and yeah i don't know if it went that way you know that often I think a lot of
1: people brought their kids to the shows. Um, I remember them – weren't they discussing doing a bunch of matinees so that kids could come?
2: No, 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 I don't remember that. That maybe, but I'm not saying anything bad about it. I'm just saying like Les's vision was hoping to – one facet is obviously to hopefully reach out to kids that might not have known about this movie. But they're in the primus because of their parents and maybe they could get a hold of this thing, you know, but – I, I don't know if it ever came across like that to kids. I never heard about anyone's kids saying, "Oh my god, my kids didn't even know about it until they saw the Primus show and they loved it." But I could imagine it was an impact, you know, because of the way it was put across, you know, because it was new school version of it, you know.
0: Right. I do recall the matinee idea, Josh, but it never came to be. Are you ready to discuss New Year's Eve in detail regarding the songs?
1: Sure. Let's. Uh, in, yeah, because okay. normally we what go. we do, what, uh, normally what we do with a Primus track is we'll play some live renditions of it, but for this one, I think we're going to play only one live rendition, which is yes. New Year's Eve 2013, so we can compare it to the record.
0: First, let's just go over some some important details. Sure. Fox Theater, Oakland 2013, so that was Les Claypool, Tim Alexander, and Larry Lund, plus Mike mm-hmm. Dillon and Skarik. It's, it's important to point out, this was not called the Fungi Ensemble. That was for the album. This right. was actually called the Frog Brigade Ensemble.
1: That's right. I'm looking at my 2013 New Year's Eve poster right over there, and that's what it says. Yes, it.
0: and Zoltran conveniently pulled out you know, the, the aesthetic from the animals, should not try to act like people, photoshoot, photo which is completely inspired by the television outfits from the Wonka factory.
2: Right,
1: yeah, the, they've got the TV goggles on, uh, all three of that figures, right. dude, yeah.
0: We started with the introduction from Les Claypool on the screen, and then we go into Hello Wonkites. The opening track of Primus and the Chocolate Factory was premiered on this very date at the Fox Theater as a prototype version with the frog ensemble. This piece sets the tone for the album, revealing one of its main melodies early on, which will become recurrent throughout the record. It was premiered again as part of the polished and completed album in October 22nd, 2014 at Upper Derby. During the Oakland debut, footage of Les appeared on the screen, as we mentioned. So let's hear a little of Hello Wonkites in the prototype version, Josh.
1: It's like an overture because we're getting that pure imagination stuff. It really does play like an overture. It's kind of cool. Yeah. And here's our studio recording for comparison.
0: Moving forward.
1: And if I recall, this is all cello and bass, right?
2: Stand up with the bow.
1: Yeah. And uh, we do get some flourishes from Larry and Tim on this as well.
0: swinging yeah i mean when you watch the film and you refer back to that opening sequence that enchanted list when he was a child with the the overflowing chocolate i mean there is nothing uh, particularly eerie about that sequence in the film but when you transfer that into this intro from the album. Very clear what Les meant when he said that you that he had the feeling that something else was going on during that opening <laughs> sequence, right? That maybe it was not as innocent as it looked like. Right. And there's definitely an ominous feeling in this version from Primus, right?
1: I think he, in some interviews he used the word sinister, and I I think that's applicable here. There's the right an current
2: I think the music already was sinister. I think he just tried to take it into another sinister area. <laughs>
1: Yeah, he really really stripped it down to its kind of its barest, most sinister elements, which is really cool. He he caught on to that.
0: How about Candyman? The frog ensemble version of the track had a saxophone passage performed by Skarig, and the fungi ensemble version removed that part. At first, Candyman was performed during the full Wonka sets throughout 2014 and 2015, and then it made a surprise return to the set list on its own during Mm -hmm. the 2017 tour. It was performed in Brisbane, Australia in 2018 as well. The utterly amazing claymation music video was done by the talented Webster Colcourt who was gracious enough to talk to us about it and we'll do a general overview about the music video later on. And as he told us, the video was also animated by Edgar Humberto Alvarez from Se Lo Explico con Plastilina. The drum part is remarkably dynamic, intricate and interesting and Just to add to everything that Tim shared with us, which was invaluable, if you would like to see Tim Alexander himself playing the song and discussing it, you got to check out his Sound Legacy interview, which is available on YouTube. So Josh, let's compare the Frog Ensemble doing Candyman versus what we got on the record.
1: I'm liking those little uh, flourishes from Skerik there. Well, it's like a pig rooting for truffles. It sounds really cool. And then uh, it sounds like we're going to get a little lure right here. Yeah, this one has a lot of extended solos because we're. This one checks in at over seven minutes yes. on, on the record.
0: I, I loved what Lur was doing there, much more than what ended up on the record.
1: Yeah, he's doing some cool stuff there. That's very compelling, and uh, I think we're gonna hear some of the Scarrick, of course. That is another record because he's not on it. Let's round it out with some Mike D. Everybody gets
0: a moment on Candyman. (laughs) It's pretty cool how the song served as a platform for everyone to showcase their skills, right?
1: Yeah, it's a nice foundation that Herb's putting down there, and it sounds like he's hitting almost everything. Like he's got six mallets in his hands, too. I really think that saxophone is so it just lends a, a dynamic element to the sound here.
0: It enhances the tracks pretty well.
1: Yeah, it really cuts through and gives it some edge. So I'm really enjoying the the, the saxophone. And it's you know it's a shame they couldn't get it on the record.
0: Let's idea. hear the let's hear the studio cut.
2: I'm moving forward a little bit.
1: There's that cow. I do like the the voice of this. <laughs> <inspiring. laughs> Look at the man
2: Look at Man
1: Feels like there's a little more bomb bombast to the uh live well, version
2: it's, it's pretty obvious that 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 new year's they were just trying to figure it all out by the time they got the studio is what you heard on the tour that came after yeah it, they kind of got uh, their act their act together and their parts together a lot better and it's more yeah. structured and more together that new year's eve one sounds really loose
1: <laughs> yeah solo 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 <laughs> give them yeah. space it look and it's uh i think our next track frankie
0: Cheer of Charlie.
1: Cheer of Charlie. Isn't it completely different, just about, especially the intro?
0: This early prototype version featured different instrumentation and a more sinister vocal by Les. The song was premiered per album version on 2014 at the Tower Theater in Upper Derby, and it has only been performed as part of the full Primus and the Chocolate Factory experience. As such, the last performance to date took place at the Orphan Theater in Los Angeles back in 2015. So let's check out... Cheer up Charlie from New Year's Eve versus what's on the record.
1: Ah, cool intro.
0: Red State Girl vibes, no?
1: Very much so. So you're right, it does sound a lot looser, of course, because it's the first performance. They are just kind of feeling around. But, you know, what's interesting is, you know, you don't hear, other than something like Mary the Ice Cube, you don't hear Les play that kind of uh, melody. So it was it was new and interesting <laughs> for, for me and the audience to hear him play something like that and to sing that way, too. Let's find that voice.
2: I realize they... Came up with all this shit in that rehearsal room, like as they kind of went along, you know, and then did the New Year's show as they're recording it. So yeah, it's pretty organically put together all at the same time, you know. And then once they got the recording guys but what you heard it on the tour. You know?
1: Yeah, there, there is a little edge that that's definitely different with that. oh Charlie, up there. <laughs> Let's contrast that with the record, shall we?
0: Cheer up, Charlie. That sounds a little sweeter.
1: He's got a much sweeter tone there.
0: As opposed to this. <laughs>
2: the cello adds a, a really good facet to it, I think.
1: Yeah, I do like this one on the, on the record as far as yeah. – not, not only is it tighter, but I think that cello is really cool there and the sounds that Tim's making. Mm-hmm.
0: Golden Ticket. This early version included saxophone and had a somewhat clankier rhythm, which you're going to hear. It was played per album version at the Tower Theater in Upper Derby. And it was played for the last time at a chocolate factory show at the Orpheum in Los Angeles in 2015. Let's check out early golden ticket. Hmm. That's a studio recording?
1: Sure is. I'm doing the wrong one.
2: <laughs> Let's
1: try that again.
0: Just backstep.
1: <laughs> Such a dope. Oh, yeah. This one does sound pretty put together, though. Um, Was this... Soya, do you remember... And if you do, was this one of the ones that they had put together and recorded a a bass track for before the performance?
2: Like I say, they they literally made up what they were going to do as they went along with what (laughs) Les's ideas were, you know, in in rehearsals.
1: Yeah. That part sounds pretty well put together as (laughs) well. And then
2: when they went and recorded at his house, obviously I wasn't there when they were tracking. Um, So whatever they came up with at that point kind of became the new Year's show loosely. And then once they went back and finished the record, then they kind of had the whole thing put together.
1: Mm-hmm. So this one sounds like it just got, it was mostly put together, but needed some polish or got some polish for the record.
2: Yeah. I mean, so, some of the ones that were played at new year's might not have been recorded yet, or had not have been worked on as in depth as some of the other ones. This one sounds like it's pretty close to what was on the record. Yeah. It ultimately became what they played on a live show. So you you can tell what stuff was worked on first versus what they kind of weren't done with.
1: Yeah. This one sounds pretty together. Here's that studio version. Sounds like it's mostly there, but they lost that big cymbal crash from from Herb uh, during the chorus
2: to make it more... I think that ties in with them trying to not do the symbols, especially on the recording. I think yeah. It sounded to me like he was hitting the spiral symbol on that. Yeah. On the live one. Here's Maybe one that
1: wasn't on the live show, Frankie. We didn't even talk about Lermaninoff yet. Lermaninoff. Here it is on the record. Lermaninoff. No Lermaninoff that night. We did it on the tour. <laughs> oh, definitely did it on the tour, yeah.
0: Pure imagination. This was the first song from Primus and the Chocolate Factory with the fungi ensemble that was revealed in 2014. The song belongs to the scene where Wonka lets the Golden Ticket winners into his chocolate room, a large space with chocolate waterfalls, a river, and an abundance of oversized pieces of candy. Les played Resonator Bass on the track. And the song is notable for its cathartic conclusion, which arrives after a bridge full of effects and different melodies. Sam Bass's cello descends like cascades throughout the bridge as Claypool complements the song's landscape with his bass solo. Personally, this is my favorite song on the album, as I feel that when Les sings, Come With Me and You'll Be in a World of Pure Imagination, it's not exclusively for the Wonka concept, but I think the lyric applies to the whole world of Primus, as if he were extending this invitation towards you as a listener into his catalog of music.
1: Yeah, we should note that Pure Imagination is what plays when the house lights come up at the end of a Primus show and it's been that way for how many years? Exactly.
2: I don't know how long they've been doing the the Wonka closing team. I don't know if they did that before the Wonka, did they?
1: I want to say they did, but I could be wrong about that.
2: I don't remember that. I remember dude. there was a dude that got pissed off one night. We were doing shows before the Wonka tour started and Mm -hmm. They used to play Popeye as the outro, the you know, Popeye theme song, because they would do the Popeye cartoons at the break, right? Yeah. On the screen. But then the outro would be the Popeye theme song. One night, Les us like, yeah, let's start playing like the Wonka as the outro, <laughs> like just like as a tease, give people a hint, we're going to keep doing it kind of thing. Uh-huh. And, and one night, they start playing the Wonka and people are walking out, you know, and there's always stragglers like this Josh Bald guy up at the front looking for <laughs> picks and sticks and set lists and stuff. <laughs> And there's one dude standing there and he's screaming at the top of his lungs. No fucking Popeye. What the fuck is this Wonka bullshit? No fucking Popeye. Why are you not playing fucking Popeye? I come to private shows. I want to hear fucking Popeye. Wow. Fucking Wonka's fucked the foot. Fuck. And we were like, like me and the tech stuff there at the time, we're like, look at the dude. We're just like, wow. <laughs> this, guy, this guy paid 50 bucks to listen to Popeye. I wonder if this is like kind of. Foreshadowing what's going to happen when we come out and start doing this as a tour because it hadn't really been announced yet. You know, this is kind of like a little secret tease that we were doing the outro music on these shows. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, Josh, let's let's contrast the prototype imagination with what we got on the record.
1: There's that snare. This one sounds pretty put together too, and those those rolls yep. are really nice. We got yeah. a little piece of skerrick here too, why not? <laughs> man. To, there, man. to get some of that stuff is great yeah ah that sounded good and so on the record we get something like this foundations there Man, I can. I'm just hearing the lack of saxophone. Foundation
0: is there, but it's a lot less loose, right?
1: Yeah, it's it's a it's a bit more focused. Uh, but I'm really missing that saxophone. I really yeah. like how it provides contrast.
0: I like all the sax
2: stuff.
1: Yeah, it sounded great. I gotta We're
2: ask them have again. I have to watch to that episode again.
1: <laughs> we'll always have that night in 2013.
0: Okay, so next we have Oompa Augustus. This song was actually performed in. 2015 at Mountain Park in Holyoke, making it the only track, along with "Umpa TV, that was performed out of the full album context.
1: Here's our first Oompa of the night. What weird vocals.
0: <laughs>
1: What's going on there? <laughs> He's way up there, uh, but in his throat. And he doesn't do that on the record. It's a little more creaky, right? The oompa oompa. It's down there, yeah. right? Well, that was a stylistic choice. And I'm kind of glad he made that change for the record.
0: Then we go into the semi wondrous boat ride. This song has an interesting life history. It was teased vocally by Les since 1991, on right. Primus shows, and also during the 1999 and 2000 anti-pop era, on some Frog Brigade shows as well, and even at Oyster concerts. It was then premiered as a full number at the Fox Theater in Oakland as part of the first Chocolate Factory performance. And it was played at every Wonka stop throughout 2014 and 2015, making its final appearance on December 31st, 2016 as a standalone performance prior to the New Year's Eve countdown for the Silver Anniversary Extravaganza. Wow. Curiously enough, I don't know if you're aware of this, Josh, but Marilyn Manson used this song to open his debut album, Portrait of an American Family.
1: I can tell you I was not aware of that.
2: I would not be aware of that
0: either. <laughs> but Let's yeah. contrast the boat rides yeah. from New Year's Eve with the studio recording.
1: Will do. <laughs> I can see why this would be rattling around in his head as far back as 91 just to tease on stage. It's pretty sinister. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listen all that great noise that uh, Tim's making behind him.
0: Yeah. But this one is kind of whimsical. And on the studio recording, there's, you know, in that particular moment that you were playing, it kind of slows down and it sounds very, very ominous. Can we get that part?
1: Yeah, and then we get in that double time. Oh man, yeah. I, that's great atmosphere on the, <laughs> yeah, on the record there. And that's one of my favorite things, <laughs> just to manipulate your voice like that, that kind of thing, like the faux slowdown or the Doppler effect. You know the.
0: Yeah. And we get "Umpa Violet." Unlike Augustus and TB, this song was never performed outside of the full album runs. Moving on, uh, we have "Umpa Violet." Okay, I want it now.
1: The highlight for me.
0: The first Primus song to feature Larry on main vocals, premiered at the Fox Theater in Oakland, with an additional introduction by Lur, which we are going to enjoy in a moment. From my perspective, this early version surpasses the album cut because it features a terrific saxophone solo by Skerrick, as well as a full marimba solo spot from Mike Dillon. So it's another showcase track. Teddy Rankin-Parker would join the band on cello for the Chocolate Factory tour, consolidating the fungi ensemble. So they kind of, you know, modified a lot of the instrumental aspect of this track. So what you're going to hear on this recording is absolutely unique. At the end of each I Want It Now performance, Les would make his little horn sound and concluded the song by saying, (laughs) "Badeh."
1: Yep, direct from the movie, uh, where she falls into the... Uh, down the vat into the into yeah. the incinerator, <laughs> essentially, and Willie Wonka just says, she was a bad egg. <laughs> then on the, yeah, and on the record we get, that lure's a bad egg. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a great little spot there. So when I... I'm going to play this. I'm going to play this I Want It Now from New Year's Eve. So those of you listening, go ahead and picture Tim Sawyer, eyes ablaze, as he watches Larry Lalonde sing on stage for... Probably the first time in his life.
0: I want my geese! I like these to lay golden eggs for Easter!
1: At least a hundred a day! <laughs> and by the way, I want to feast. I want to bean feast.
2: <laughs> Free luncheon donuts and fruitcake with donuts, so good you could go nuts.
1: That unique sound to it on the uh, that we'll hear on the record as well, very different from what you get in the film, which is great. But that that intro, you're right, that's not on the record. That uh, dialogue. How about some scaring?
0: Very
1: Phrygian. <laughs> you reliving that moment, Soya, <laughs> here in Lur? <laughs> totally. 100%. Here's a little bit more
2: Lurland.
1: Oh, man, Frankie, you're finding all the best moments.
2: The coolest thing about this this record is all the weird key. The key that a lot of these songs are in lend to the lure land of kooky, quirky. They're in a weird signature and key so that it's totally lure Zappa bullshit, you know? Like it's, <laughs> like it's made for lure to like create some weirdness in those weird, goofy keys, you know? Right, yeah. It
1: sounds. I think I said Phrygian. I don't know if he's in Phrygian, Mixolydian, or whatever, but it's one of those modes that it sounds vaguely Eastern. And I think uh, it's
2: I think it's demonic minor.
1: Demonic minor. That's the one. Yeah. And Lur loves to hang out there. And that's yeah. That's a very Lur sound, isn't it? Right. Yeah, for sure. I love this track so much. I mean, as we go through these, and I'm reliving this New Year's Eve. Golden Ticket really stood out. Pure Imagination really stood out. And then this one. These would be the three. Uh, Tracks from that performance on New Year's Eve that stuck with me, um, and that I was really buzzing about. Frankie, do you want a little uh, taste of the studio track? Yeah,
0: let's hear the studio cut.
1: Here's that studio cut. Dialogs removed. This intro is fantastic.
2: I want a feast. (laughs) I want a bean feast. Cream buns and donuts and fruitcakes with no nuts. So
1: good you could go nuts. Nice articulation, too. And there's Bad Egg. I have to play that.
0: It's pretty cool, but um, <laughs> I think the live rendition is, is the keeper.
1: Oh, I, I don't disagree. I'm going to keep them both.
0: Oompa Veruca. It. This song was subsequently played at every stop of the tour after the premiere on New Year's Eve, but unlike Oompa Augustus and Oompa TV, it was never performed outside of the full album runs. Let's hear it, Josh.
1: These are perfect for Skerik. This sounds so good.
0: Skerik really took them to the next level because on the album, they get quite repetitive.
1: Right, yeah. And in such a short span, I think it's, uh, if I look at my... Track listing here, we get uh, Oompa Violet, I Want It Now, Oompa Veruca, Wonkmobile, Oompa TV. There's just those three kind of slammed together there.
0: Then we go into Mobile, premiered as a very short prototype. It was then played per album version for the first time in Opera Derby. And it was performed for the last time at the Orphan Theater in Los Angeles. So let's hear this early Wonkamobile.
1: And your notes say weird less vocals. I'm all about weird less vocals.
0: Love it! Sounds it's like, like his opera and such voice.
1: It is. It's that
2: foe. Rrr, 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 he's way up there. Creating a character unless yeah. he's really good at that, you know <laughs> for sure. <laughs> um, he got um, the voice. Um, TV. The character, I guess, would be more. A lot um, of people um, don't TV. like don't like and can't do that. You know, like have an idea to be some character unless he's really good at it.
1: Yeah, why he hasn't done more uh voiceover work for animation is beyond <laughs> me. He could he could you know make his career with that.
0: Um, um, TV. premiered. And subsequently performed from 2014 in Opera Derby until 2015 in Los Angeles. The only instance where the song was performed outside of the full Chocolate Factory context was on the Green Space set, which included a costume contest to promote the new album.
1: Here's a little bit of that one Soya's bouncing up and down, Plants and Fred's out of time. <laughs> Garrick just makes everything better, I'm convinced. Hey, Soya, was, were you able to breathe in there? Was it hot inside that
2: get-up or what? Oh, yeah, it was, it was hot, you know. <clears throat> had my clothes on and threw the shirt, the shirt and the overalls on and put the head on. And, yeah, it was sweaty. <laughs> I, had, I had a handful of beers over there behind Lur. I was pounding, <laughs> getting prepped.
1: I, I would imagine after 70-odd shows, uh, at the end of the tour cycle, you were, uh, your quads and your glutes were fantastic.
0: We'll get to that when we talk about the tour. (laughs) Aha! I'm onto something. Farewell, Wonkites! It was very different uh, during its prototype rendition at the New Year's Eve show. You can really tell that this is a song they focused on and they polished it up for the release on the record. It was premiered per album version in Upper Derby, as as you might be aware, with the fungi ensemble. The last performance today took place at the Orphan Theater in Los Angeles. This performance, by the way, was a live webcast. In typical Primus fashion, the song is a reprise of the album's opening number. Mm -hmm. Larry plays the Wonka melody on guitar while the song builds slowly on upright bass and cello, with Tim's drums providing a simple but very appropriate backdrop. The track then reaches an evocative syncopation with guitar, upright, and cello galloping along to a cathartic release. This instrumental piece might very well be the most compelling closer on a Primus record, in my opinion. It's incredibly rich with many layers, instruments, and melodies. As for the film, the song presents the last scene where Wonka, Charlie, and his grandfather ride the glass elevator, where Wonka tells Charlie he has inherited the chocolate factory and delivers him an unforgettable piece of advice. So, Josh, let's contrast Farewell Wonkites."
1: Telling us he was going for a Gilmore thing there. That's a really compelling intro. It got better. Let's check out that build-up near the end. Yeah. So listening to Herb there, that's about the only place where he really lets it go, as far as not to, or sorry, as far as playing some kind of rock beat uh, throughout the Wonka stuff. And then I don't think that happens on the record, right? He kind of sticks to nope. that back and forth uh, Tom stuff. So I'm going to go to the end yeah. of the studio recording. I went too far. Sticking to the toys
0: there. Ah, still I a just great love sound. that track. It's incredibly evocative.
1: It sure is. That's got a really nice sound to it uh, on the live performance as well. And as it's a
0: very, record. it's a very compelling closer. I mean, the the intro on the album is like this nice little teaser, but the closer is incredibly compelling.
1: Agree, big time,
0: man. So uh, overall, uh, if we contrast the frog ensemble version of the album versus what we got on the record, I think both are pretty great, but there are definitely some elements of the new received performance which we miss on the studio recording, right?
2: Primarily Skarik.
1: Primarily scary is where I Primarily was going. Primarily
0: go. and, and maybe some uh, some numbers were kind of more upbeat in some sections, mm-hmm. right? In the New Year's Eve show. I
2: think the jam vehicle was more involved on that New Year's, trying to fill up a, a set, you know, not knowing what they were doing. Sure.
0: Yeah, oh, well, yeah, yeah. I still think a seven-minute rendition of Candyman on the record would have been pretty great.
1: I think so. They could have jammed that out, uh, much like they did at, on New Year's Eve. But at the same time, the structure that's on the studio recording uh, is, is welcome in the sense that they focused in and, and wanted to have this product. So I... You know, that was a little tighter, and you can hear the difference on those two recordings. So I'm glad we got to put those side by side, track by track. It was a
0: very interesting listen. Like a
1: Hello, Primates. We had so much fun talking with Soya that we had to divide this into two parts. You're going to get the conclusion of Primus and the Chocolate Factory next week. We'll live in happiness, happiness too. Right here. Don't be a bad egg.
2: With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
2: Sorry, sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. No,
1: Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case,
0: I pronounce you lucky.
2: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses
0: are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Haya. And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. Hi-ya!